Welcome to Wyoming My 307. My name is Carla Mowell and I've always been interested in architecture. Maybe it's because I moved so much as a kid and I always loved exploring all those different surroundings. And I was so lucky to have grown up visiting cities like Buenos Aires with its Parisian style buildings and Aberdeen, Scotland with their endless granite architecture. And you know, we think of architecture as being very grand. But the definition of architecture is the art or practice of designing and constructing buildings. So everything from a barn to a fancy cattle baron's mansion to a humble one-room cabin, all of that is architecture. And I also love road trips. And today's episode is going to give you a wonderful virtual road trip of Wyoming's architecture. I'm fascinated by the changing scenery when I'm going on a long road trip. You can start the day driving through a sea of sagebrush, and then suddenly you're in juniper foothills, and then that becomes a mountain scene of conifers. Well, the same happens with the built environment. For example, I noticed that our Wyoming barns are mostly red or weathered wood, But as you drive east into the Midwest of our country, you start seeing more and more white barns. I know there's probably a story in that shift. Well, today's guest is Eileen Starr. She literally wrote the book on architecture in the cowboy state. It was such a pleasure to have the opportunity to finally ask someone about those swinging doors in every Western movie bar scene. Let's have a listen. Welcome, Eileen Starr. Good morning, Carla. Eileen, I'm so excited to talk to you about Wyoming architecture because it's not something that our state is necessarily known for, but I think we have a lot of gems that we could talk about today. What do you think makes Wyoming architecture unique? I would say that the dramatic landscape that you have in Wyoming with and use that as the backdrop for any sort of architecture you're going to have a dramatic effect. Um, The idea for most buildings in the United States came from somewhere else, came in our heads. But for Wyoming, um, there are buildings that are set against a rock face, and it is particularly pleasing in terms of the aesthetic effect. It looks so interesting, whether it's for a corral or just the backdrop of a a ranch house. But there are, of course, other buildings that are in national parks or are in neighborhoods in Casper and Rock Springs and Cheyenne. They look different than other states. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? So are there things that are different here because of that background or for other reasons? Well, in Wyoming and in, in all over the United States, generally people, for the most part, used materials that were available locally. So when you look at uh, Hamilton stores or you look at Old Faithful Inn, you'll see those gnarled logs and those aren't available everywhere. And they integrate those into the building itself. Then um, one of your podcasts talks about the rock. And you see those in the buildings, that they've obtained the rock locally, 
and it looks very dramatic on the building itself. Um, you could also say that because the railroad was one of the prime motivators for the development of Wyoming, that we see we see a lot of things were available other places, and they were brought to Wyoming. But Wyoming put its own special imprint on those. For instance, you see cowboys on hotels, terracotta cowboys, or you see a way to personalize their commercial structure using materials that they got from the railroad. I love the fact that some Wyoming architecture is just highlighted by that background. And I think that one great example of that is in Hyattville or outside of Hyattville at the state park, which was originally privately owned land. So there's there's a farmhouse and barn and other structures out there. And you're right. It's just built right along that creek. And mm-hmm. it makes it so much prettier, you know? Right. The placement is specifically designed within the landscape. For the most part, the buildings in Wyoming were constructed by builders or the occupants. But there are architect-designed buildings um, in the state. In your book, which I absolutely loved, it's called Architecture in the Cowboy State, 1849 to 1940. Mm -hmm. You talk at the beginning about visual myths. What you're referring to there is false fronts and boardwalks and bat wing doors on bars. I mean, basically (laughs) everything we've ever seen in every movie about the West what would you tell us about the Old West and how did it really actually look? I think that it was uh, much less attractive than the, the stage fronts, the placement of buildings or, or just the sets for Gunsmoke or any other um, TV Western. By the way, I love watching TV Westerns. I don't know why. But anyway, um, and you watch... And you look out, you know, it's kind of neat. You know, you've got the board sidewalks and you've got dramatic parapet walls, which are the, with the false fronts, but they're all wood. And actually, initially, everything would be kind of very muddy. It would have been smelly. It would have been um, crudely constructed in in some instances. And um, there wouldn't have been the rhythm that you see in most sets that where Gunsmoke or some other TV Western is filmed. Um, what I mean is rhythm that you look at a building and it has a certain similarity to the building to the next and to the next. And you can anticipate what the next building may be by how it looks on the set. But that necessarily was not true, especially in the earliest days. There were canvas buildings. People lived in tents. People lived in crudely constructed cabins that were frame. It was only later when they had time would they start constructing log buildings and more permanent parapet fronted uh, false fronts. I, I also remember, I think from your book, correct me if I'm wrong, that the false front, the parapet, which I hadn't heard that term, that that's not a uniquely Western style. No, 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 no. When it's presented in movies or in the television set, they give you the impression that this is only out west. 
where it's all very exciting and you can kind of anticipate the plot. But that is certainly not true. And there are, you can find examples of a false front and the parapet is that wall that goes up in the front. It goes from the roof, wherever, whether it's a gable roof or a flat roof, and it goes up to extend the appearance of the building so that it gives it a huge signpost, an availability to use that large wall to advertise. So, so that's the purpose of that wall, of that style, cool. is to give you a big surface to slap an ad on? Well, that's one of them. Certainly, if you have this large wall, it's going to look much more permanent and it's going to catch your eye. You'll think, oh, this is a reputable institution and I can go into this bank or this hotel and and stay there. But um, it was... Or that, that old phrase that we don't hear much anymore, it's a going concern. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, well, um, we think about architecture, you know, when we use the word architecture, it's like, I don't know, you get that fancy feeling, you know, but there's a whole category of architecture that's no longer standing. It was built for a temporary purpose, basically. And some of that is like teepees and wiki ups. And you mentioned dugouts or Saudis and tents, which my grandmother, when she first moved to Wyoming, lived in a tent for a year, and that was in the early 1900s. Are there any of those exemplars that you found and are still left? And I didn't pick up any in the book, and I was just curious about that. There are occasional dugouts that you find on ranches that have been used as um, root cellars. So yes, those exist. Native American architecture, especially teepees, happened to be used for migration and they did not establish permanent locations. It would be odd to see a teepee that had been there for over a hundred years or a wiki up, but you might find remnants of one. In terms of a Saudi, I think I've heard that there were a couple of Saudis, but Due to the nature of their construction material, they sort of melted back into the earth. The dugout usually had a support system that may have some rocks or some other parts, other logs to help keep it up. Therefore, some of those have survived. But as time goes on, those earliest um, aspects of Wyoming's architecture are gone. Of course, there's Fort Laramie. And Fort Laramie has buildings from, you know, it started in 1849, and there are buildings there that are very early. They were constructed in a much more substantial method. And just for clarification purposes, the dugouts are basically like man-made caves, right? (laughs) I mean, that's how I think of them. (laughs) You kind of dig dig out a hole and create create support (laughs) inside. And then the Saudis are little chunks of turf that people used almost like bricks. Is that right? Exactly. Right or no? Okay. No, no, that is correct. That you would have a hugely heavy piece of um, the ground that might have had any kind of grass on it. And they would lay those in sort of like brick like fashion. But to do that was time consuming and very 
labor intensive, whereas a dugout was you had, you know, lots of hills in Wyoming. So somebody would see a, a lovely hill and they would decide that they could dig into that hill and empty out parts of it and keep, you know, use uh, lumber and logs to keep up the what would become the roof. And they would um, hollow out that part of the earth and live in the dugout, which always presented all sorts of excitement because, you know, somebody could put their foot through the roof, a horse mm. could, or cow could <laughs> come and graze there, or they would try to put in sort of a space for glass for a window. And that was awfully difficult as well. So the outstanding feature of a, a dugout would be the entry and the roof and the walls and trying to keep that clean uh, would have been a disaster. Yeah. I was thinking about that as you were saying it, because I mean, one thing is to have a dirt floor, but another thing is to have a dirt floor, dirt walls and a dirt ceiling. I mean, it's just impossible. It's a fight right. that will never be won. Yes. And that's why so many dugouts were very temporary. And then they started construction. If they thought they were going to prove up on their homestead, then they would start construction of a house, even a modest house, one pen, one room probably would be much better than living in the dugout. Although I understand that dugouts were, might have been a bit warmer than, uh, and cooler than something sitting on top of the ground. Well, and there's a sprinkling of, of houses that were built, I would say like in the seventies, maybe that are built in, you know, I mean, they're modern houses with regular right. ceilings and floors, um, but they're built in for that very purpose because they're more regulated, temperature controlled. I don't know. They're Yes, they're ecologically sensitive and they can be energy saving. And I think that as the climate continues to change, we may see more of those again, earth burned houses. Well, you go into like different Wyoming towns that have their own architectural flair, which I found really, really interesting. For example, you mentioned that Cody has more stone buildings. Can you tell us, maybe give us a little overview of a, a couple of towns that, that have some architectural types to them? I'd have to say that lots of Wyoming cities and towns have their own use of the materials, which makes them distinctive. Yes, I did mention that Cody with the Irma Hotel and the use of stone is was very popular up there. And of course, look around, there's the opportunity to use lots of rock there. Yet there are other places in Wyoming uh, that were established along the Union Pacific Railroad line. And for each each city, they were given, you probably heard this tale, one was given a, the capital, another city got the university. Rollins was fortunate, got the, the penitentiary when it became a, a state penitentiary. And Evanston got the state hospital. So there are these parts of Wyoming history where you see, for instance, if you're in Evanston and you walk around the um, the neighborhoods, you'll see a lot of canted fronts on residential houses. Canted means that um, basically the builder, instead of coming to a regular corner and making it um, just a, a square 
or a rectangle, they chop, that person chopped it off. I'm being very simplistic here. So you have a corner entry instead of something on a wall. And that's called a canted front. That's a local characteristic. When we were working on the National Register nomination for downtown Evanston and eventually the um, railroad yard there, there were lots of what we call iron fronts. And iron fronts were a way to decorate the facade of a building, the front of a building, and they could be purchased from a catalog, whether it was in Indiana or in Missouri or in Utah. And they could be literally iron that they needed to keep painted or sheet metal. So you find those distinctive elements in in Evanston. For instance, Blythe and Fargo, I have no idea if that's still the name of the, of the store, has a dramatic looking iron front on it. If you go to other places in the downtown, you'll see, you'll see a placard and it'll say Mesker Brothers or um, another maker on that marker. Now, hopefully that's painted to protect the iron or the sheet metal or the zinc. That's something you find in Evanston. Rock Springs is a little different in that, you know, the railroad goes right through the town and you, you have, you can tell that Rock Springs had a lot of money at one point. Look at the first national bank. Terracotta all over that structure with the decorative details is really outstanding for Wyoming. Terracotta is this really heavy building material constructed or manufactured somewhere else and then placed on the building. But a piece of terracotta, and I know this because I've tried to get it for my garden, may weigh over 100, 150 pounds. And there are decorative pieces that are smaller and there are the very, you know, the normal size pieces that you would have on a commercial structure. And there would have be a shiny look to the exterior of the building and that is terracotta. So it's a, a clay product and they may have been made, uh, manufactured in California and brought to Rock Springs, but you just can tell that the fact that the railroad's going through the middle of the town and you have such a dramatic bank building that it had money at one time. If you move on to, and I'm going to the, the larger buildings along the Union Pacific line, Rawlins with the state penitentiary was designed by an architect and I believe it was William Du Bois of Cheyenne, a very prolific architect. And that what Du Bois used was local materials. Once again, it has that look that it fits into the landscape in Rollins up there on, on that slight rise. And it has uh, little rounded turrets on it and the dramatic, formidable penitentiary with all the accoutrements of a penitentiary wall around it, the sally port, and then you can go into the complex itself. The last time I was in the pen, um, it was no longer a penitentiary. Um, it was I have being to gone. laugh. Not everybody can say the last time I was in the pen. <laughs> That's true. They've, 
they built another penitentiary outside of Rollins. <laughs> well, they, they, someone made a film there and they splashed this paint on the wall. So it looked kind of not great, but, um, you could still go into what they called the death house and see where the gas chamber was. Um, I was reading about J.P. Julian, who was an engineer architect, which is a common combination back in the 19th and 20th, early 20th century. And Mr. Julian, a Civil War veteran, um, came out to practice, practice architecture, excuse me. And when he did so, he created gallows to hang people. And the first, I think the first gallows that he created were for the notorious Tom Horn. And, you know, I guess it must have worked. The gallows must have worked when they practiced it. But it did not work when they actually tried to hang poor Tom Horn. And he's, you know, he was supposed to have, uh, I don't want to use the word hung on, but stayed there. Suffered. Uh, yes, he suffered until his neck broke. But they used the gallows for a while. Hopefully they fixed that problem. But yeah. anyway, he was um, a noted architect in Wyoming. But he's just associated with the sort of disgusting story with that. Um, <laughs> sorry. I mean, somebody has to build it, you know. <laughs> you got to take the jobs that you're offered, I guess, is the bottom line. <laughs> Well, I find this, I find this tour along the railroad really interesting. And actually, I had not heard that, that these major institutions were handed out along the railroad line. And it makes sense because everything is down along that railroad line. It's not evenly scattered across the entirety of our square state. Indeed. And that was the earliest part of the settlement of the state for, for white settlement when they were moving through in the 19, 1860s and 1870s. Right. There's a really lovely historic building that is close. It's a residence up close to the um, penitentiary. And it the design for that came from uh, an architect in Knoxville, Tennessee. And he sold catalogs all over the United States. And you could buy the plans for a building and you could ask the architect and his staff to alter the plans to suit the lot or your needs, whatever. And so they built something up there on the hill close to the, the pen and it's called the Ferris Mansion. And it this design from books and their, its association with the architect barber has become very popular now. So people there, I think there's a website and there are Facebook pages. Like, I have a barber design and other people will say, well, I have a Sears design. Well, I have a barber design or I have this design or that. So uh, catalog plans have become much more popular today to talk about than it was true back in the 19th or early 20th century. Well, and I was surprised to learn that, because I, I had always heard of the Sears houses, mm -hmm. 
a house kit you can buy on a catalog. But I was surprised to know that there are some public buildings that were also so like stores and mm-hmm. other things oh, yes. that you could purchase as a as a catalog design. I didn't know that. You could even buy um, some sort of design for a barn. They were quite popular. It wasn't just Sears. There's Aladdin or Van Tyne or Montgomery Ward. And the Montgomery Ward catalogs happen to be over in the American Heritage Center. At least that's where we looked at them um, when we were doing research for the book. Some people desperately want to say, I live in a Sears house or some other house because it seemed to them as prestigious. But, um, (laughs) which usually cracks me up. But on the other hand, some of the materials in the Sears or, or other catalog houses happen to be very fine materials. And there are two different grades of materials that you could use in those buildings. And so the reason some of them are left is it's, well, sheer dumb luck. They weren't knocked down, but also they were well built and um, they had good materials that came in on the railroad. Well, I happen to know what your favorite building is, and it's one (laughs) that we're all very familiar with, but could you tell us a little bit about your favorite building in Wyoming and why is it so important and why do you consider it so beautiful? It's Old Faithful Inn, which is located within Yellowstone National Park and particularly in love with that structure for a number of reasons. One, the exterior reminds you of various um, influences that the architect Robert Reamer of Seattle used in the, in the design of the structure. Um, there's sort of the Chateau-esque, and, he, and that happens to be one of the largest log structures in the world. So a little information on the original log um, Hotel and Northern Pacific Railroad helped finance that structure. And you go in inside it and you have a huge atrium that soars to the ceiling, like 76 feet. And you see all these gnarled logs and intricate log work, whether it's on the staircase or um, in the light fixtures or all over in you know, a dramatic use of Um, logs in the structure. And then there is um, an association with a volcano with the fireplace. The the stone, I believe, is rhyolite, and it was used to construct that huge fireplace with the dramatic chimney that goes up. Um, There are several stories to Old Faithful Inn. Some are accessible to the public, others are not. But they, um, I think that it is just a remarkable structure. And then if you go to the second story or the third story and you stay in the old house. Now, I'm not sure you can still do that, but I have in the past. And there are these Olympic-sized bathtubs. Of course, I'm exaggerating. These huge bathtubs in sort of a a very modest frame building. and And the rooms are modest. But if you are lucky enough to be on the side of Old Faithful going off, oh my goodness, it's an 
a, such a wonderful experience to see that while you're sitting in, um, in bed. So I think that staying at Old Faithful Inn or Lodge and um, any cabins that remain there, just exciting. Yeah, I've never stayed at Old Faithful, but I've had a very nice wander throughout the lobby and sat at that fireplace and had a hot chocolate. And it was a transporting experience. I mean, it's just so beautiful. You feel like you're living in a fairy tale when you're in that building. Oh, yes, you really do. Because of how Reamer designed the interior atrium so that you get a sense of what the logs look like the past looked like, and the different um, European influences that he used. There are also American influences that Reamer drew upon when he created the design for that particular structure. And tremendous log support beams. So anyway, it, it's just so gorgeous there on the landscape. Yeah, it really is. Another thing I found really interesting was your discussion on the Scandinavian influences in private mm-hmm. buildings. What details should we be looking out for to see that influence? There were men who worked in the forests harvesting logs, and they were called tie hacks because they were obtaining trees to be used in the railroad and the ties between the two to rails of steel. So the tie hacks frequently were from Sweden, Norway, and they had experience with building log structures. And so if you go to Woods Landing Dance Hall, or you go to various barns in the um, Laramie area, you can see the dramatic use of this the skill that the tie hacks had, the builders had at notching at the corners, remarkable skill, not just laying one on top of the other in a saddle notch, but putting it together full dovetail or half dovetail notching so that those, those logs support logs in the wall would be locked in very closely. But to create that notching, you had to be very skilled. And on some buildings, you can see that there is a, a flare at the bottom, that the, the bottom logs uh, in the notches are farther out than the ones at the top. And that is associated with some Scandinavians. So those are the things that were used by the Scandinavian tie hacks when they created those buildings, and they pass those techniques on down to others in their family. So it's a, a tradition of, a, it's called a folk tradition of sharing that information, uh, showing someone how to harvest logs and to notch the logs. To put something into a, a dovetail or have dovetail notching takes a lot of skill and strength. Good grief. You look at the logs there. Yeah, they're very heavy. And just even picking logs and having them all be so even, you know, we have a a cabin here Mm -hmm. that is linked to my extended family. And the person who built it was of Nordic ancestry or maybe even came over. I can't remember what generation it was, but 
it has that flair and it is just the most beautiful cabin. And you look at it and every log is the same diameter, which I know, of course, they trimmed them down. But still, that's no easy feat. No, it isn't. Merely moving them from the forest to the building site was something of a challenge. Right. And here in the Bighorns, we have, there's, I think it's a campground and it's called Dead Swede, which that has always <laughs> stood out to me as being very odd, not a very welcoming name. Very close to Dead Swede is Typhloom, right. which is a, a, a hike area, maybe a campground too, I can't remember. But that connects the Swedish and the Thai hacks, you know, because the Typhloom was basically a a wooden structure that was used to float these logs right. down the mountain, which made it, I think, a little bit easier than just dragging them. Oh, yes, very definitely. Um, or they waited until winter to move them um, on the ice. But yes, of course, the whole business of moving logs in streams or with a, a log flume was very dangerous. So whether the Tyhacks were in the forest you know, harvesting the trees, or they were building a structure on their off time, they had to be very strong and had to be very careful with what they were doing. Right. There's a kind of a, a local lore, I guess, about a one-eyed Swede, <laughs> is how it was told to me. So that's yeah. how I'm going to repeat it. Uh -huh. one-eyed Swede who was known for his fence building. And there's a fence that I, I've taken a picture of. It's on BLM land. So I'll, I'll post the picture again so folks can see what we're talking about. But it's just made out of juniper branches. So the, the posts themselves aren't cut evenly. You know, they're all like a little bit different. But the fence itself, which is probably over 100 years old at this point, is just ruler straight. <laughs> I mean, it makes an absolute straight line. I'm sure you could look at it from the moon and see, oh, what's that straight line? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wonder if some of those, those skills have been lost over the years. And I think that's kind of sad. But anyway. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, we can't we can't go on without mentioning Sinclair, Wyoming. Because of your book, I made the trek out to Sinclair, Wyoming to check okay. out the architecture. So tell us about Sinclair and what makes it unique. Well, Sinclair was a designed town to house the managers as well as um, the workers at the refinery. And that, once again, is along the um, southern tier of the Union Pacific Railroad in uh, Wyoming. And Sinclair was designed by architects, the buildings themselves, by Fisher and Fisher, who happened to be in Denver and designed many, many buildings down there. It's really quite remarkable in that it um, has those very distinctive sort of Spanish-style-looking building, like on in, um, in the inn as well as the manager's buildings. It, it, the, it is distinctive. Um, 
So I would say that a Fisher and Fisher really um, designed something that's very different for Wyoming than was traditional. Um, you know, it's a company town, as is um, Sunrise in eastern Wyoming. And yet this company town is a place you'd want to live today. It has so many features in terms of its built environment. You know, with the open area in the front, there's a space there for a park. It's a well-organized town. You know, the cows did not create the streets. It is stick straight and it has that reference to the past that Fisher and Fisher created when they designed the buildings. Yeah, it looks, there's a lot of stucco. I think it's stucco. So the, it's unusual that there's not a lot of wood, you know, in Wyoming, we're used to seeing a lot of wood in the right. older buildings. So the other thing that stuck out to me was the roofing is that Spanish tile. Oh, yes. Which gorgeous. is so beautiful. It is. And it can be lovely until you have a hailstorm. So, yes, um, you would need to make, when you build a structure, if you're going to have a clay roof, it needs to be stronger than with traditional asphalt. But even the fountain in the front of um, Parco Inn is something that, you know, grabs your attention when you go there. I think there are the cats in, in around that fountain. I'm not sure. You know, there's a, a group that was not there. Um, when I lived in Wyoming, called the Alliance for Historic Wyoming. And this is a membership group that advocates for the preservation of Wyoming buildings. And they did work, I believe, at Sinclair. And they have been doing work in Cheyenne and up in the, I believe, in the Tetons. And, the, and they go all over. If you go to their website, believe it's um, historicwyoming.org, and you can find all the projects that they've been undertaking. Of course, maintaining any historic building, especially if it has not had regular maintenance, can be a real challenge and can be very expensive. I noticed that there are grants available uh, through the Park Service. If you can get a grant to help you with your structure, wahoo. And a tax credit for a commercial building is one thing, but, you know, having a grant money from the federal government is really another. The Wyoming Historic Preservation Office has a wonderful website, and you can look at studies on history and architecture. And I highly recommend, if you're really interested in Wyoming history and architecture and archaeology, to give that a look because it tells you which sites or buildings or towns are National Historic Landmarks and which ones have further work and what has been written about and a further sort of detailed information on uh, the National Register or review and comment. And, you know, their website here in Wyoming is much easier to use than some state offices. I've been zooming around it, looking at different things that they've you know, published on it. I am really impressed with what they've done. And also, if you want to look at the book, at uh, the book with all the fabulous photographs by Richard Collier and other previous photographers at the SHPO, it is something that you can download on your computer from 
the State Historic Preservation Office's website. Yes, I was I was offered that, but I couldn't rest until I got my hands on an actual copy. So I found one. I think it was used, but I found one. <laughs> well, you mentioned the Alliance for Historic Wyoming. They have a series of tours of historic properties that aren't normally available for tour for the public because they're in progress in terms of repair and redoing. Yes. And I have a wonderful opportunity this summer to attend a tour of Arapaho Ranch's mansion. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's an extraordinary building. I don't know, maybe I have not been here. Miles. Yeah, it's it's outside of Thermopolis. But I mean, you go and go and go and you're going towards Legend Rock State Park. And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden there's this amazing, huge mansion in the middle of the rangeland. And you're just like, what happened here? You know, and so it's really interesting to hear the story of of how it was built, why it was built and what they plan to do with it. So I recommend, like you said, everyone go on to their website and I'll include it in the show notes and just kind of follow along because they're really putting a lot of effort into some of our beautiful old buildings. Well, your book surveys Wyoming architecture through 1940. How did you choose that cutoff? Okay, the book was written in the late late 80s and early 90s. So there's a 50-year cutoff for having buildings or um, towns placed on the National Register. If you take 50 years minus 1990, that you get 1941. That is the, that is why. And also I chose 41 because that's when Pearl Harbor was bombed. We entered into a war with Japan and then Germany. So it seemed like a good cutting off point. But now I see that people have been working on doing research on POW camps in Wyoming the German POW camps, and just, you know, what happened in Wyoming. Your father flew for the Canadian Air Force. Is that right? No, my father was not in the Air Force. He was in the Marines. Oh, okay. There's a great picture of a Canadian, a Royal Canadian aircraft on one of your... Yes, it's a picture I took right here in Gray or outside of Grable. It's in a boneyard of... World War II and more modern era airplanes. Oh, yeah, that was taken at the Museum of Flight and Aerial Firefighting just outside of mm-hmm. Grable. So there's a bunch of really neat old planes out there, and included in there is a gorgeous Canadian one. That was a nice picture that that you put in there, and I thought, I I wonder if that museum is newer, is new as in the last twenty years or so. But I could be wrong. Like, yeah, I think it is because it was, you know, the reason those planes are there is because of the aerial firefighting. And then I think they kind of got out of that business. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, though. But people come from all over the U.S. to look at those airplanes because you can actually clamber up into them. And uh, there's a nice little museum there that explains what you're looking at for those of us who aren't in the know. So what is something that people driving through Wyoming may not realize about us or about our state? The diversity that happens to be there in terms of the topography as well as the human beings that have lived there and currently live there. 
What do you think is the hardest thing about living in Wyoming? Okay, today we can easily rely on Amazon, but if you needed a special type of clothing, for instance, you had to, I, I ordered my sorrels from Land's End a long time ago so that we could go on the clothes and travel, but you always had to order certain things. That was one of the hard parts. The other hard part I found is that at 6,000 or 7,000 feet, the growing season is it's short. And that continually frustrated me. You know, you'd put something in the ground and it would snow. Or early in September, there'd be a frost. As someone who's really trying to grow things all the time, in spite of both successes and failures, I found it frustrating to have such a short growing season. And what do you love most about Wyoming? I would say the topography. And, you know, I I was thinking about how I would drive um, up I-25 and you go around this curve and you see the dramatic walls and chug water. But you also know that the Swan Land and Cattle Company National Historic Landmark is over to the side. And you'd see a, a ranch house or a farmhouse off or just uh, an example of dry land farming off to the side and think, it's still there. Good. There were these in my head. Places that I looked at, checked on as I drove all the time. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I do that too. There's like a certain tree I'm looking out for as I, as I turn a corner or a house or you just said so many cool things today that it just has me thinking. So I really, really appreciate your time, Eileen. It was been oh. fascinating and I'm going to read the book again. Oh, <laughs> good for you. I just loved this conversation with Eileen. Her laughter is so infectious and it made me smile over and over while I was editing this episode. I forgot to tell her that I went to high school in Aberdeen, Scotland. And while we were there, my dad sometimes had to travel to Norway for work. He once told me that it felt oddly familiar the first time he went there. After a few visits, he realized that the modest houses there reminded him so much of the simple wood-framed houses in his hometown of Grable. That makes sense, because early Grable had a lot of folks with names like Peterson and Norskog, Christensen and Erickson. As I mentioned in the interview, Eileen's book inspired me to visit today's dot on the map the most architecturally beautiful town in Wyoming, Sinclair. It's a tiny town of just over 400 people, and life there still revolves around a large refinery. What's extraordinary is the Spanish-style stucco public buildings and matching private homes. Now, I wish I had spent more time there, and I definitely plan to return to visit the Parco Sinclair Museum, but unfortunately, it was closed for renovations. On top of that, I couldn't stay long because of bad weather. Plus, there was a major waterline break, so the one and only restaurant wasn't open. That's just how road trips are sometimes. What I did get to do was walk around and take pictures of the architecture, which is what brought me there in the first place. 
I'll post a variety of those on the show notes website as well as on the Instagram page. Well, today's Wyoming wildlife are magnificent little architects, pocket gophers. There are actually four species of pocket gophers to be found in Wyoming, and one, the Wyoming pocket gopher, is only found in south-central Wyoming. To me, these little herbivores look like chubby little long-tailed hamsters with much longer claws. Like hamsters, they store food in their pocket-like cheek pouches. There's such variance within each species that they're hard to distinguish, and you can't even really tell males from females. But you don't have to worry about that because you and I will rarely see them. Not only are they quite solitary, but they spend most of their lives in their burrows underground. And their burrows are what reminded me of architecture. In the winter, they burrow the soil under the snow. As they excavate, they create little tunnels that are partially above ground. When the snow melts, you'll see long tubes of soil snaking over the surface of the ground. These are their burrows, and they're called eskers. I found that term interesting because there's also a geologic feature called an esker, and that describes long ridges formed by glaciers. But back to our gophers. Not much is known about them because they are hard to observe. They live their whole lives in these little tunnels where they nest and breed and store their food. They usually stay in those very same burrows their entire lifetime, probably because they have both poor vision and poor hearing. They mostly navigate their little dark world using their highly sensitive whiskers. Now in town, pocket gophers are treated like pests, but in the wild, they're considered ecosystem engineers. Through their active burrowing, they aerate the soil, they increase soil fertility, and they speed up the formation of new soil by bringing up minerals to the surface. Because very little is actually known about pocket gophers in Wyoming, and their ranges are so limited, they are a species of concern. So consider yourself very lucky if you ever do get a chance to meet one. Well, we've reached the light at the end of the burrow. I hope this episode inspires you to look for Scandinavian-influenced log cabins, to check out historic buildings as you travel across our wonderful state, and to look for eskers made by pocket gophers next time you're out hiking. Now, if you get a chance, visit Sinclair. And if you don't, then at least check out the photos of this architectural gem of a town. As always, look at the show notes for details and links about today's episode. Follow WyomingMy307 on Instagram. That's where I'll post lots of pictures related to today's episode. If you have any questions or comments, email me at WyomingMy307 at gmail.com. Everyone on my email list gets show notes and a link to the newest episode when it comes out, and I also give a sneak peek into upcoming episodes. Until then, happy trails to you. Until we meet again.